All right, we are in the last chapter of uh, Matthew. We've been in the discussions of Matthew for a long time. Uh, today we're going to conclude the, uh, uh, the book. Uh, yesterday Cheryl said to me, you're not, you're not preaching tomorrow, are you? And I said, yeah. She says, well, when, when did you have time to prepare? I said, you know me, I don't prepare the sermon I'm going to preach the week before I do it or the night before I do it, as some people do. I learned a long time ago that life was going to get in the way, and if you do that, you're going to preach things that you haven't really worked through. So I usually prepare stuff uh, two to three years in advance and try to live it, try to interact with it, and see if I've got it right before I do that. I, I just can't imagine that Peter, the day before Pentecost, came up with his Joel commentary, right? Uh, the reality was he was always studying the Word and always aware of the Word, and it was part of what we, lie, what we live, and that's how that works. So um, we're in the final discussion of Matthew. We come to a conclusion. Uh, this includes the resurrection and the Great Commission with a little side note of the report of the guards at the tomb. There's a benefit of dividing the Bible into chapters and verses, but there are also some drawbacks. Uh, the gospel wasn't actually written in chapters and verses. So I'm going to go back to Matthew 27, verse 62, where we were a couple of weeks ago, so that we can flow into chapter 28. Uh, this text at the end, as I mentioned before, is narrative, not teaching text. So I want to start by talking about the difference. A narrative text in the Bible gives the story of the interaction of God with his people. And that's understood in the Torah, you'll see that, and the story of the Exodus, where there is much of that is the dialogue of God speaking with Moses and Moses speaking with the people and God doing things. Those are not specifically teaching texts as we would think of them in a textbook. These are narratives, but they're narratives that express who God is and what he is like so we can learn from them as well. Uh, the... Uh, Gospels are also narratives predominantly, though they have teaching texts in them. Uh, as we learn from these, we need to understand that sometimes we'll see parallels in those contexts. The teaching texts are the direct commandments, the explanations, the prophetic dreams and utterances that are found in the scriptures. Um, they're found in the giving of the commandments in the Torah at Mount Sinai. And the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels, much of the epistles are teaching more than narrative texts. But there are narrations in them, uh, such as the book of Galatians and in Corinthians, where Paul narrates events that have happened in a way that illustrates uh, the Word of God to us. So we're going to begin with Matthew 27, uh, verse 62. Uh, this is after the crucifixion. And it is also after the um, burial of the Lord. And we pick up at verse 62 through the end of that chapter. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. 
Therefore give orders for the grave to be secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure and and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. After the death and resurrection, I mean the death and burial of Jesus, this next day is called the day after the day of preparation. Scholars argue about that. What is this day of preparation? Some think that it's a day of preparation for the Sabbath, and that gives us our traditional view of the crucifixion on Friday. The day after the preparation day then would be the Sabbath, though it's not mentioned here as a Sabbath. Uh, It's mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures as a Sabbath. And so the idea is that Friday was the crucifixion, Saturday was the sealing of the tomb, uh, awaiting for a resurrection on the first day of the week, uh, which would be the third day in that sense. Now... um, What we have here is a uh, Sabbath, also the day of first fruits, the first, I mean, the first day of unleavened bread, which is a uh, Sabbath, regardless of what day of the week it is on. So it's a very, uh, that would be a very solemn time, and it's odd that they would come to Pilate in that context, Uh, and that no mention would be that, that it was the Sabbath. Because John's very clear that earlier when they came to Pilate on the day that he was going to be crucified, they didn't enter into Pilate's house so that they could eat the Passover that night. And that's the day of the crucifixion, which seems to connect to John's explanation that Jesus died while the lambs were being sacrificed. And therefore, this is the day of the preparation of Passover that he died on. And of course, we uh, tend to lean in the direction of a Wednesday crucifixion, which would give us three days and nights to Saturday night, which is technically the first day of the week, when the uh, resurrection would take place. Whether you take it one way or the other, the interesting thing here is that they remember, wrongly, a statement by Jesus, uh, and uh, while they don't believe at all that he is going to rise from the dead, they're afraid that the disciples are going to fake a resurrection by stealing the body. And so they are told by Pilate that they have a guard. Again, there's a controversy here. Is this the guard of uh, the Sanhedrin? In other words, this is a Jewish guard, a kind of a Jewish police force that would guard it. Or is it a Roman guard? When he says you have a guard, is he giving permission? Well, I'm not sure they needed Pilate's permission. He had already given them given one of the members of the Sanhedrin the body for burial, they probably could have set up their own guard. To go to Pilate and ask for the guard, and him saying, you have a guard, makes me lean in the direction that this is a Roman 
guard. I talked about this last time about the centurion when he saw the earthquake and all these things said surely this is the son of God and the way Matthew writes that it's hard to know which events are being seen, which events he's talking about because he is tying together the resurrection and the crucifixion in that sense. So Pilate tells them that they have a guard and the scripture says that they secured it and they put a seal on the stone. Um, again, much talk about what that seal is. Is that a Roman seal that would prevent someone from, uh, from opening the seal? Did they put a seal on it that says, uh, you, this is not to be disturbed? I'm, I'm not going to get into that. The issue is, this thing is now identified, it is secured, and there is a guard there. My sense is it's a Roman guard. That makes more sense with chapter 28 that we're about to talk about. So, we come to chapter 28 now and uh, pick up with this, this week's uh, text. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, very clear which one this is, since it's the first day of the week that is starting, and it's about to be dawn, that means it's the following morning as the first day of the week has taken place, where clearly the Sabbath here is the seventh day Sabbath. So, the scripture says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified, he is not here, for he is risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to the disciples, and Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Now, really important to take a look at this. And here we have Matthew doing a text that for us as English speakers is problematic. Verse 2 and verse... uh, Three and four happened before verse one. The text is pretty clear in the past tense. A severe earthquake had occurred. So what is Matthew doing? He's trying to explain why when the women come to the tomb, there's an angel sitting there. There's no guard. There's no seal. And that tomb is open and there's no Jesus. Instead of telling the story of what happened and then doing that, doing the women, he inserts the story of what happened so that the angel can be identified. So let me read it in sequence and see if it makes more sense to you. 
So we'll get back to verse 66 of the previous chapter. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And behold, an earthquake occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. That's what happened. Now notice there's no mention of Jesus rising. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. Jesus passed right through the grave clothes. He later would pass right through a door. He just came out of that tomb. That didn't scare the guys because they didn't see that. What they saw was this angel descending with an earthquake. The stone going and this guy sits on the stone. That's fascinating. Scared them to death. I dare say it would have scared me to death, right? Uh, so they scatter. This probably happened Saturday night, sometime between darkness, which would make it Sunday, right? Make it the first day of the week. Probably before midnight. The idea being that it was probably at the time of the cutting of the first fruits. Now you know that Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. During this week of unleavened bread, there is a text that says, on the day after the Sabbath, you are to go into the field and cut uh, the sheaves. Those sheaves then are to be weighed before the Lord the following morning. So that means Saturday night they would go out and gather in the sheaves. As in bringing in the sheaves, right? And so that's what's going on. And Paul refers to Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. So that Saturday night, Jesus rises from the dead. There's an earthquake. There is the angel. And then the angel sits around waiting for the women, right? The guys have split. What he says to them is, I know who you're looking for. He's not here. He's risen. And he's going to meet the men in Galilee. So go tell them that he's alive and that he'll meet them in Galilee. That Galilee statement is important. So then what happens is they go back both afraid and joyous. The guards did not leave afraid and joyous. They left afraid, right? So fear and joy, and all of a sudden Jesus appears to them, and they worship him, and he says, tell my brothers, I'm going to meet them in the Galilee. And you know from the other Gospels, they went to tell, uh, and there is also an encounter that Mary Magdalene has in more depth about this notion of, have you stolen the body, that's probably where this is occurring. And then uh, Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb. John's younger. He gets there sooner. Uh, Peter, uh, actually Peter, uh, you know, one of them stumbles inside. The other one waits outside. There is no body there. Jesus has risen. So this gives us some insight into what is going to happen in the next, uh, in the next part of the text. Um, there, 
uh, verse 11, sorry. Uh, verse 28, uh, chapter 20 and verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, this is the women that are going, uh, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. I love that. Can you imagine the chief priests? Well, the disciples didn't come to steal the body. There was an earthquake, that stone rolled away, and an angel showed up. We were not going near that place, right? So when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, what are we going to do now? They gave them, and the Greek here is clear, they gave them a sufficient amount of money for them to be bribed. They're going to be bribed now, hush money, to shut up about that story. They said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, if it was a Jewish guard, the elders and the chief priests wouldn't have to give him money. They they already controlled them. They would just tell him to shut up. I believe that this is a Jewish, I mean a Roman guard that is going on here. They stole him while he were asleep. Now, the problem is if a Roman guard goes to sleep, he's going to be in big trouble. But remember, Herod and the uh, chief priests are in cahoots in a number of things. And so they say, if this should come to the governor's ear, or Pilate, uh, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Again, I think that leans in the direction of a Roman guard. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story is widely spread among the Jews uh, to this day. And so again, we have the origin of the story of the disciples stealing the body. Now, I find this uh, a terribly uh, flimsy story. That the disciples stole the body and faked the resurrection. And then preached the resurrection. And ultimately, we're all believing a lie. And one of those reasons has been put forth by several uh, scholars over the years. Uh, the truth is, uh, somebody would have, would have broke ranks. Okay? If you separate those guys and you torture those guys and you, you uh, give them grief, one of them is going to say, all right, we stole the body. Right? But they all died martyrs' deaths except John and they tried to kill him. Uh, And the issue is, they didn't break ranks. I believe two major things that hold me to the scriptures. One is, something happened at Sinai. You don't come out of Egypt 400 years a slave and come up with the Torah. Something happened at Sinai. The other one is, something happened at Calvary and the resurrection. Those two events, for me, hold me. The rest are details, and I can live with that. I don't struggle the way a lot of people struggle with that. So We've got a revelation from God that just doesn't seem to me to be humanly possible. And a resurrection which conquers the one thing that mocks our faith, and that is death. So this is, this is powerful stuff going on here, even though people like to have a quick intellectual argument for, well, you know, they stole the body. Okay, Don't buy that one. Right, so now we come to the Great Commission. Probably the most famous text uh, among evangelicals uh, from the book of Matthew. 
um, verses 16 to, to 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. Remember, that's where he said he'd meet them. To a mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this is a passage we all know well. Interesting that it talks about the eleven. We know what happened with Judas. Judas will be replaced with Matthias in the book of Acts. uh, Luke 2, the sequel, right? And uh, so here's the eleven. Jesus had said he would meet them. He meets them in the Galilee. I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, hearing this story and watching the movies about Jesus. And hearing sermons about it. And I always had the notion that the Great Commission was given on the Mount of Olives. Across from the temple. And then Jesus, after giving the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always. He begins to ascend up into heaven. I don't know if that's the image in your head, but that's the image in my head. But that is not what happened. The Great Commission is given during the 40 days... In the Galilee, not Judea, at a mountain that Jesus had designated. Okay? And Jesus comes to them, and I love this. They worship him, but some of them are doubting. Not really sure what's going on. That's comforting to me. Because this faith that you and I have is a struggle faith. It is certain, as God's word is certain... But it's not as certain in our minds. It's not as certain in our hearts. We struggle. Things happen and we go, how can that happen if the word is true, right? There are struggles in this life and in this, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I love it that the disciples themselves who saw him do his miracles and saw him in his resurrected form, but they're still in this condition that we're in and they're worshiping, And having doubts. Okay. Fightings within. And fears without. O Lamb of God I come. I come. So. Jesus now says to them. All authority is given to me. In heaven. And on earth. Jesus has just established himself. As Lord. Not just Lord of his disciples, but Lord of all, with one exception. Paul gives us that exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, everything is subject to Jesus except one thing, and that is the one who made everything subject to him. In other words, God the Father is not under Jesus' authority, but everything else is. Notice Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, so I'm going to give you my authority and then I'm going to go to heaven. He doesn't do that. There are people in the church that think that's what happened. What he basically said is, I have all authority, I'm Lord, 
So, you now have a job to do. And your job is to make disciples. Baptizing them, that's the starting of discipleship. That identification with the death, burial, and resurrection, and the cleansing uh, from the world into holiness to be part of the holy community, the fellowship of disciples. And then teaching them to observe everything that I taught you. Now that's amazing. In other words, it's not the four spiritual laws. He doesn't say, I want you to uh, get people saved. I want you to make disciples. I've made you disciples in this last three years. And I want you to make disciples from among the nations. Now this from among the nations can be interpreted two ways. Go to the Gentiles and make them disciples. Or go to the Jews in diaspora and make them disciples. Now the church will tell you that this is Jesus saying go to the Gentiles. And ultimately that will be true, but that's not how the apostles interpreted this. First of all, they didn't go anywhere. They stayed in Jerusalem. And they only preached to Jews. Until God sends an angel to Cornelius to come to Jaffa and get Peter and say what's going on, right? And so he brings him, he comes and he's talking to these Italians. And he's explaining to them what happened to them with no idea why he's doing that. Because he saw a vision that doesn't make sense to him. And all of a sudden there's a mini Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon Gentiles. And they speak in tongues and prophesy. And so Peter goes, well, I guess we ought to baptize you. In other words... We're going to make disciples of these guys. So he baptized them and he comes back and the other disciples go, you went to a Gentile's house? What are you doing that with? And he said, I saw a vision. I went. I did it. The Holy Spirit was given. The same as it happened to us. And so they calmed down. But they didn't say, all right, let's get more Gentiles. It won't be until the Apostle Paul comes along who understands through the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are included. And then when there's a battle over that, they come back and realize that you and I are part of this great commission. Therefore, this statement is make disciples of the diaspora Jews and the Gentile. For the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Now, I believe that God intended that as Jews accepted the gospel and Gentiles accepted the gospel, they would see it differently. Jews would see it as the restoration of the kingdom of David and waiting for the diaspora to be over and for them to be gathered back. And and Gentiles would say, okay, that's fine with us, but what about us? Well, you'll be included. When he comes back, he's going to get you, and that is the... Eschaton, that's this notion of us being gathered up in the air with them. That's a mess. That's the next series that we're going to talk about uh, because I've been asked to do a series on the sequencing of the events at the end. And we'll do that with Q&A too. So, 
the, the commission is as you go. It doesn't say go. There's no command to go there. The Greek context is as you're going, where you are. Make disciples everywhere. Okay? And Jesus said to the disciples, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, they didn't go, but their texts have gone. And by the way, if you're worried about the uttermost parts of the world, if you take a map and you start at Jerusalem and you go to the uttermost parts of the world where there's land, otherwise it's ocean, you will arrive in Southern California. The uttermost part of the earth from Jerusalem. Right? So, we, the gospel has done that. And interestingly enough, it's getting harder and harder to get Gentiles to believe in God. And easier and easier, I mean in Christ, and it's easier and easier to get Jews to. That door that swang in one direction, opening up the gates to Gentiles, is beginning to swing the other direction. And the scripture says when Israel comes to faith, what will it be but life from the dead? It comes back to this resurrection again. Now tied to this commission is that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to teach them to observe, that it means to do, all that Jesus taught. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, until heaven and earth passes away, not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the Torah until it's all fulfilled. The commandments of God in the new covenant are placed on the heart. They are not different commandments. They are the commandments that can't be placed on the heart because of the weakness of the flesh. Jesus didn't die to get rid of the commandments. He died to get rid of the sin and flesh that prevents the commandments from coming into full operation. Now you and I know that we can't fully keep the commandments that apply to us. But one day when our bodies are resurrected, we will be able to do that. And that will be the kingdom indeed. So then he says this. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is going to ascend, sit at the right hand of the Father with his high priest ministry uh, mostly concluded. He will return again without issues of sin as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he will not leave us alone. By means of the Spirit of God, the Father and the Son dwell in us. Individually and more, more importantly, communally. And he says that will remain the case until the end of the age. In other words, the end of this present creation. Now he's not going to abandon us, abandon us after that. But the difference is, he is with us now, but we are not with him. In the kingdom and in the new Jerusalem, we will be with him and he will be with us. So we are not abandoned. We are not forsaken. Those things that we've shared today in our testimony time and I love that we share the good and the bad and the ugly in there because that's what life is 
And we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn and we remain community while we wait for the kingdom to come. And he is with us to the end of the age. Now I'm not suggesting that tomorrow morning you get in your car and you ask Jesus to put on his seatbelt while you get on the 91 freeway. That's a little over literal in that sense. But I want you to know that he is with us. His angels are ministering servants waiting to care for those who are the heirs of salvation. That's us. A salvation ready to be revealed at the proper time. Now I'm ready for it more and more as things get rough. But I know that it's going to get rough because I've read the book and it gets rough. But there is no rough spot where he will not be with us. What a comfort. What a blessing. What a joy. And he's also given us one another that we have a manifest expression of who he is in our midst. So Matthew's gospel should be a one that we read regularly. All the gospels should be read regularly. But we need to get the word in us. The word without the spirit won't help. The spirit without the word has no way to communicate. We need to be in the word, in prayer, and in community so that we can demonstrate his presence in us and what the body is when it functions with all its parts operating. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer.